tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, today the plot thickens in our... It, it would make a great novel. I mean, this whole story of Saul, there's, there's the salt shaker. What I'm going to say is going to require lots of salt today, but, well, I'm going to say it anyway. It's about David. You know, oh, before I launch into anything, uh, I want to remind you about the Fast for Life. You know, I've been remiss in doing that. It's, you know... A, with the Supreme Court decision, all that people are, well, we want, we not one yet until there are no abortions or until abortion is considered abhorrent in this country and in the world. We haven't won. So the March for Life is, is this Friday and, and we're going to be having a fast for life. We join you to offer your prayers and, and, and if possible, your fasting, uh, this Friday. And you're allowed to do it leading up too, but, but really keep this in prayer and fasting because, uh, as Scripture says, and I think this is the sense of Scripture, some demons are cast out only by prayer and fasting. Um, <clears throat> you know, somebody asked a question about the Amalekites that Saul yesterday was supposed to exterminate the Amalekites. Why was he supposed to exterminate the Amalekites? I believe because being Canaanites, they were committed to child sacrifice. And uh, that, that it is pretty conclusively archaeologically proven that the Canaanites... Uh, who were not just the people in in the area of the Holy Land. They, they were up in Lebanon, and through Lebanon they colonized Spain, southern Spain, and, and uh, uh, North Africa. Carthage was a, was a Canaanite city, and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Cartagena in Spain, that, that comes from the Greek word for New Carthage. These were places where child sacrifice was was practiced, and, and God essentially obliterated those cultures and um and and uh he used uh, israel to do it and he used the romans to do it and uh uh it, the romans were not the most sterling of moralists before they came to christ um and uh, uh they still found the sacrifice of children abhorrent so um I make the point because we sacrifice more children than they ever did. And I think the only thing that is fending off the wrath of God, because there is a wrath in God, uh, no matter what your theology is, the big book on the coffee table seems to indicate that, that a situation can get so bad that God can only deal with it by obliterating it. Um, and you get what you ask for. That's what I, I said to this gentleman who called yesterday about how do we justify this God who will slaughter even the children of the Amalekites, you get what you pray for. You sacrifice children, it means you think children should be killed, therefore God's going to hear your prayer. I really believe that. God, his justice and his mercy are the same thing. He grants our prayers. Not the prayers we think we're praying, but the prayers that we're actually praying. So let God inform you even in your prayer life. I've gone way off the track. Just pray hard for this success of the, 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 the March for Life this Sunday in this 
horribly cold weather. All right, that said, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Which I've gotten terribly confused, haven't I? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I, I thought I drifted into the prayer from St. Michael. You know, I don't know if it's old age or this intense cold in which I'm currently living, or just me. I, I think it's just me. I've been pretty scatterbrained most of my life. That said, let's Good open the big grief. book on the... Amen. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. That'll help. All right. Um, I want to go to the gospel first, because the gospel has just a touch of controversy in it. Um, we read um, that... Um, David went into... Jesus says, have you never read what David did? Um, that how he went into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest. And people will point out that Abiathar was not high priest when David went in. He was one of the only priestly survivors and, and thus became a high priest. Let's, let's look at this here. Um, it was... Uh, I, I need to, to uh, look up the Greek text here. Uh, how they came into the house of God upon Abiathar, the high priest. Now, that would normally mean when Abiathar was high priest. And I don't know that that uh, Jesus was saying that. This is in the Gospel of Mark. Um, that that it, it, Abiathar was kind of the famous guy in this story. And Jesus is reminding people of the story of Abiathar. Otherwise, Jesus got it wrong. Abiathar was one of the only priests to escape from from Saul when he massacred the priests in Nob. Uh, Nob was was uh, uh, a town that belonged to the priests. You see, the priests, the the tribe of Levi, didn't get a section of Israel. They got towns throughout Israel, and these were sanctuary towns. Well, uh, the whole town was massacred by Saul. Um, and Abiathar was the only one to escape. And so this was, this was, he was the, eventually became high priest. And this was, uh, uh, this would have been the hallmark of the story. So I think people who want to say Jesus didn't know what he was talking about and the Bible is wrong. I think they're making way too big a deal of it. So that's just me. So, all right, let's go back to, uh, to the text, because Jesus says something uh, really quite interesting about uh, what the disciples are doing. The disciples uh, were making a path while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, they, they, 
made it unlawful according to their own their own decision. It was their interpretation of the law. The Pharisees uh, took the law of Moses and defined it so precisely. In other words, you have to wash your hands before eating. Well, how much water must you use and in what way must you wash your hands? And it turned out that an eggshell and a half worth of water was sufficient. And you poured half the water in one hand, made a ball with your fist and rubbed it. And then you poured the rest of the water on the other hand and made a ball with your hand and and and, and um, rubbed it in the, the wet hand. And then you dried your hands and you said the appropriate prayer while you were doing it. That's the law. Well, no, the law is wash your hands before eating. It doesn't prescribe how much water it does. I'll, I'll never forget. I was at Sabbath dinner. No, I was at... at uh, Passover at Rabbi Lefkowitz's house, and they had a cantor. You know, this was a very poor congregation, but they shelled out for a fancy schmancy cantor from, from the holy city, Crown Heights, in New York. And um, uh, this guy was, he was an observer. Well, he almost choked on the matzah. He ate so much, and he's just stuffing his mouth with matzah. And I said to the rabbi's son, Moshe, what's he doing? He said, well... The mitzvah, the commandment says where to eat unleavened bread. Doesn't say how much. So he's eating lots to make sure he fulfills the mitzvah. This is kind of the Pharisaic attitude. You do uh, extra as commanded by their interpretation of the law. Not uh, extra in terms of the generosity of your heart, but you know, you're, you're filling out the form in triplicate. That's what the Pharisees were, were noble people. They saved the identity of of, of Judaism. However, they uh, <clears throat> kind of thought that their interpretation was the only interpretation. So here we go. Uh, the disciples are picking heads of grain, and they're breaking the law, at least as far as the Pharisees are concerned, at least in three ways. Now, they're walking through a field. Uh, if there was another house within a thousand paces, I believe, uh, or they had a meal within a thousand paces, which they were actually doing, that was considered their home. You, you, I think you could walk a thousand paces uh, from your, your home on, on Sabbath. And if you put a meal there, then that became your home, and you could walk a thousand paces more. That was one of their definitions. And you could go as far as you, you wanted in, a, in an area that was uh, built up, that was, that was considered your home. Now... Moving along, I haven't gotten to the fun part. They are picking grain, which is work, harvesting. They are rubbing it in their hands, which is uh, threshing. Um, and they are blowing off the chaff, which is winnowing. They have broken the law at least three times, and if the walking through the fields was exceeded the allowed distance, four times. Well, they were breaking the law. No, they weren't breaking the law. They were breaking the rabbinic, the Pharisaic interpretation of the law. And I mention this in such detail because, you know, people love to, com to, to invent sins for other people to commit. Well, that's a mortal sin if you do that. Show me where in, in the catechism, in canon law, in the scriptures, where this is a sin. Uh, I remember somebody uh, mentioned it was a mortal sin for someone to open the tabernacle doors for adoration uh, after they had been delegated to do so by their pastor. You see, we delight in, in 
pointing out other people's faults, but heaven forfend that they should point out ours. So this is what Jesus is doing. And uh, he mentions, remember about Abiathar the high priest, uh, the days of Abiathar the high priest, which kind of started out with with uh, uh, this incident with David, where he went in and they gave him uh, the, the, the consecrated bread from, you know, the, the, the show bread, the, the bread of the presence. Okay, moving along here. Let us go to the first reading, which, oh, good grief, I suppose I have enough time for it, because uh, this is fascinating. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve for Saul? This is fascinating. Why would Samuel grieve for Saul? Because he's, he's afraid of Saul. He says, the Lord's saying, go and you're going to anoint someone king in Bethlehem. And he says, if Saul finds out He'll kill me. This is who Saul had become. Um, this is this is this is truly awful that Saul had become taken his his role as king way too seriously. Uh, so the Lord said to Saul, "How long will you will you?" It's it, the word is mitabel. It means to mourn. Uh, it it it's. It's what you do when someone you love dies, and um, I don't know if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof. Remember that scene where, where um, uh, one of his daughters goes off and marries a, a, a Gentile and converts to the Russian Orthodox. That's it, and converts to Russian Orthodoxy. If you do, if you did, if you do that, if you leave Orthodox Judaism, I believe it is a custom to hold a funeral for for uh someone who does because they're in fact dead if they and i think that that's a quite a quite a thing to to realize so well there we go that that um samuel is mourning for saul as if one dead and he says fill your horn beyond your way i'm sending you to jesse of bethlehem i've chosen my king from among his sons now here's the really screwball harebrained part of my theory um, first of all, uh, this is, well, that's, I, I just noticed something I wanted to mention. Take a heifer along, a, a cow, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I mean, this guy was a seer. <laughs> and what's a seer? One who sees. I, I think I've shared that, 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 that visions, in a sense, you know, we want to make them physical. You know, the Blessed Mother appeared. Uh, I remember the title of a book is the Blessed Mother appearing in Medjugorje, and I'm not getting into that issue. No, she appears in the spirit wherever she appears. That that uh, well, I, you mean she wasn't really at Fatima? Oh no, she was really at Fatima in the spirit, because you see, the spiritual world is more real than the physical world. The physical world is in constant change and is passing away. The physical world, if you look at holographic theory, this may just be a giant hologram. There's a, a, a reputable school of thought that says that that though this desk I'm sitting at may seem solid and um, all that you, you touch seems solid, it may all just be a hologram. It's possible. The spiritual world is not a hologram. It's real. It's the real world. And there are some people who are gifted to see that real world. I always point out Roy Schoen's wonderful book, Honey from the Rock, in which he talks about his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. And uh, 
uh, he, he it involved the Blessed Mother, and he could the veil between this world and the real world, that is the spiritual world, was very th- was made very thin, and he could see this. And I thank God I'm not a seer, because if you could see what's going on around you, it's a constant free for all with with with, uh, <laughs> with the angels defending you and the devil trying to get you. And I'm just as glad I can't see it. I'll leave that to my guardian angel no matter what his name is. Well, moving along here. Um, So uh, they come trembling. The elders of the city come out trembling to meet him and inquired, is your visit peaceful, O seer? Yes, I've come to sacrifice. They were afraid of this guy and his spiritual and his material power. He was a powerful man, and he could have cursed them in the name of the Lord. So he he declared the, the 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 sacrificial meal. Cleanse yourselves. Join me today for the banquet. And he invited Jesse and his sons. Well, the sons of Jesse come trooping in, and he looks at Eliab, and surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. He goes through all the sons of Jesse, and the Lord says, "No, no, no, not him. No, not him either." The Lord said to Samuel, "Do not judge from appearance or from lofty stature, because I have rejected him." It's about Eliab and Abinadab and, and all of the Shammah and all these sons. And there were seven sons. And he says, don't you have any more? Says, oh, yeah, there's one out tending the sheep. Well, get him. Um, we won't begin the, the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. So Jesse sent and brought with him, and he was ruddy, a youth handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. Didn't they say the same thing about Samuel, or rather about Saul? I mean, we read about Saul that that um, uh, that he was a whole head taller than anybody else, and he was very handsome. There's not a person among the sons of Israel more handsome than Saul. From his shoulders upward, he was higher than any of the people. He was a head taller than people. I mean, so that it's two different words for handsome. Very interestingly, uh, that that let me pull this up here. I got it right here. Uh, there are two different words for handsome. Uh, the word for handsome for Saul is tov, which really just means good. He was he was agreeable. You know, it's it has the, it can mean uh, good looking. He was he was uh, he looked he looked he looked kingly. But then you get to David, and he's called, um, he's called, let's see here, he is called, he was, he was, first of all, he was ruddy, admoni, which means he was red. He was, he was, you know, he was an outdoorsy type, and um, he had, there were some bright eyes. That's not what the word really means. The word means pretty. Uh, a girl who is pretty is yafemaod in Hebrew. He had pretty eyes. And he was tov roi. So he isn't just tov. He's tov roi, which means he is very good looking. And the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. And Samuel kind of wonders about that, really. Um, I mean, all these other brothers, well, they're 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 not the one. So apparently, when God says, "Don't judge by appearance, I judge by the heart," there was something about 
David, which Saul thought he wasn't going to be king material. He may have been the runt of the litter, and he was maybe just a little too good looking, you know. Uh, it's possible to be too good looking in this world, and um, uh, especially if you think you're too good looking. Well, there was something about, he wasn't, you know, I get the feeling that when the, the scripture calls Saul Tov, he's good, that and he's tall and he's strong, he's handsome in, in a manly sense, whereas <laughs> I suspect David had a boyish cuteness about him, which doesn't make for good kings. Well, David is going to prove that he is definitely a warrior's warrior, much to the chagrin of many people and um, to the confusion if you really look at the life of David. But here we begin with David having a heart for God, that, that God looked at the heart of these people. And Saul's heart was not right. None of the other sons of Jesse had right hearts. But David was a man after God's own heart. And here that begins. All right, that said, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and read a few letters. The phones are open at 888-914-9149. Now take what I just said with a grain of salt. You got the salt shaker ready? Uh, take it with a grain of salt. 888-914-9149. I may be wrong in that interpretation. But then again, I may be right. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Well, these Highway 40 Blues I've walked hold both my shoes Counted the days since I've been gone Nothing like country western. I remember I was in the old country visiting the cousins in Germany and they asked me, Richard, hört man viel in America das country western music? <laughs> you got a lot of country western music in the States and we certainly do. All right, let's go to letters. You often said that for a valid Catholic baptism, the form and words must be followed, that a marriage between two baptized Christians can be valid. Yes, I was talking about two Christians who are not bound to Catholic form. This is something people don't understand, that we as Catholics are held to a, a higher standard. We would think of it as a higher standard. It's a sacramental standard. All right, let's back up. A thousand times I've shared the word, the Latin word sacrament means an oath to the death. That's what a sacrament is in Latin. Now, theologically, the definition of a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. We are the original covenant church. We in the Orthodox, the sacramental churches. And the fact that we have seven sacraments indicates that. The word, se the word seven in Hebrew is Shabbat. It's almost the same exact word to swear. So in ancient... Uh, um, Hebrew, you wouldn't say to someone, I swear I'm telling the truth. No, you'd say, I seven you, I'm telling the truth. I seven you, I'm telling the truth? Yeah, because the words were the same. Seven is a number that implies a covenant oath. And we have seven covenant oaths, seven sevens. 
and this is important. Numbers spoke to to the Israelites. Hebrew numbers speak as well as count. Now, that said, we who are in a sacramental religion, the sacramental form of Christianity, are bound by those sacraments. Well, how come Protestants aren't? Because there is a saying in moral theology, no one gives what he hasn't got. Nemo dot quod non habit. I remember when uh, our moral theologian, our moral teacher, uh, said that in Latin, and the kid raised his hand from the back of the room and said, Father, what, what is that? The kid, the poor professor was astonished because the kid had never taken a word of Latin. It was the new church. Well, moving along, Nemo dot quod non habit. Boy, am I off the track. Protestants cannot be expected <coughs> to take uh, to, to view these sacraments the way we do. <coughs> Excuse me, but they still participate in the sacraments. In a valid baptism, we believe that even a Protestant is joined in some sense sacramentally to the church. And thus, when a man and a woman properly uh, express their, their, in a public way, they express their commitment to each other to live a marriage that is permanent, exclusive, and open to life. Those are the three contract conditions of the covenant. That, that's valid, and we respect that. However, if one of those people were baptized as a Catholic and does not bother with the Catholic form of marriage that is witnessed by the church, that's what we add to the, the, the covenant between the husband and wife. We add the element that it's witnessed by the witness of the church, the priest, the deacon, and in situations of necessity, it can be witnessed by other people. That, by that, I mean a desert island, not just they couldn't get the hall for that day. On a desert island, you could still get married, even if a priest wasn't wasn't there. But it would take those three conditions. So, all right, if a validly baptized Catholic marries a Christian was baptized by a minister, did not use the proper words. Well, we would believe that they didn't enter into the covenant of baptism with the triune God. You know, there's whole sects that Jesus only sects who believe in what we call Sabellianism or modalism, that God is the Father in heaven, he's the Son on earth, and he's the Spirit in church. No, there are three real persons who are in real, perfect, infinite relationship, so perfect that they are one in being, yet three in persons. Um, so the minister freestyled the baptism. How would the formal words be verified? Uh, as appropriate decades after the baptism. Does a baptismal certificate from a Methodist church guarantee a valid baptism? We presume it does. Um, the Methodists baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water. Uh, <clears throat> our presumption is for the validity of the sacrament, but there are, there are, there are definite, these are strange times. So if there is doubt about the nature of baptism, what we would do is have a conditional rebaptism. In other words, I bapt if you have not been baptized before, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit with the pouring of water. So um, it's a little complicated, especially in these times. Uh, there are so many invalid baptisms. I was in a parish where they baptized in the name of the Father, the Father, Mother, the the Savior, and the Creator. And those baptisms were invalid. And uh, I was in a situation where I brought that to the attention of people, and I was the bad guy. 
why the words matter so much? Words matter. <laughs> Jesus is called the word, but logos. Um, that words matter because they're all we really have to express the truth. We can speak with our hands and feet, but God has given us this wonderful gift of language. And the words matter because they they betoken, they indicate my intention to be part of this larger society, this larger reality. And when I just want to be part of my own little reality, I remember a group who wrote their own creed. And one of the lines, it was in Uptown in Chicago, God is the God of Uptown. Well, that's nice. He's, so he belongs to you, not to the rest of us. Um, in the creed, they didn't call God Father because that was chauvinist. They didn't use the word Lord because that was chauvinist. They didn't mention, I don't think they mentioned the resurrection. It was a lovely creed, just didn't mention anything that we believe. And they wanted to be their own little church. And so the words do matter. The words betoken the intention to become part of this, this universal fellowship that spreads through space and time. If you're unsure of the words, uh, you can you can have a conditional rebaptism. So, I don't know if that answers your question, Jim. But um, uh, that uh, um, if a Protestant is marrying a Catholic, we expect them to do it in a Catholic form. One can get a dispensation for that for good reason, but uh, it's 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 important. Okay. Okay, and this is a question. Why does the Old Testament end centuries before the birth of Jesus? Well, it doesn't really, if you're Catholic. <laughs> the Maccabees were a century before Jesus, and uh, uh, some of the wisdom books were probably written in that century. So it doesn't end. Um, <clears throat> this is very interesting. I think there's, several, there's a several-century gap from Malachi to Jesus. Yeah, oh, there is, but not in the books of Maccabees and not in some of the wisdom books. So uh, our tradition of, of sacred literature and the scripture, the books of scripture are a continuous record. Uh, there, there are bigger gaps in, in, in the period. I, I was astonished when I found out that the temple at Shiloh was the, was the place where uh, the, the ark was kept for 300, I think 69 years. That's a long time. Well, it's covered by the book of judges. Um, so it's pretty continuous uh, if you have a Catholic Bible. I hope that helps, Jim. Okay, let's see here. Okay. Now, Jerusalem, but they've been exiled. The temple has been destroyed. Okay. Why did they stop writing books? Well, they really didn't. Uh, uh, the, the, the Jews did not stop writing books. There are... The Talmud is... is a, and the, Mish, the Mishnah, which is the heart of the Talmud, the Talmudic commentaries... That was composed over the course of, of centuries. Uh, there's all sorts of literature that was written, but a canon was established by Christians and by Jews after the fall of the temple. And, and so those later books didn't become canonical, but they were still being written. So I think it's very important for us to understand this uh, as, as Catholic Christians. We did not stop writing, nor did the Jews, but we did not stop writing. Uh, after the fall of the temple and after the last word of scripture was set pen to paper, we have the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas. We have the the, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. We have the Apostolic Constitution. Some parts of those seem to go way, way back. We have a, all this literature and a wonderful source of this stuff. If you want to understand the literature and the situation of the early church, I don't think you can do better than Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is... 
Uh, he'd be embarrassed. I hope, Mike, I hope you're not listening. He's, I think he's a genius. Not only because he's so learned in these things and so dedicated to his craft, but he's able to explain them in a way that is simple enough for you and me. These are not difficult books to read. So I, I highly recommend Mike Aquilina. Uh, there's so many more, uh, wonderful authors out there. There's Bergsma, there's Dr. Pitry, there's, there's uh, Ted Sri. There are all these, uh, Dr. Dr. Ted Sri. There are these wonderful geniuses who are writing literature that isn't aimed at, at, at scholars, but at, at believers and, but they're scholarly works. They're good scholarship. So I urge you, if you want to learn about the early church, uh, look up books by Mike Aquilina, A-Q-U-I-L-A-N-I, or I-N-A, I'm sorry, Aquilina. He's, he's wonderful. All right. Okay. I've said enough. Let's take a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. The phones are open at 888-914-9149. Oh, and while I still got you on the line, look at the Eucharistic encounters. You know, we're, it's a rush job getting ready for the March Sunday, but, uh, we got time to prepare for the Eucharistic, uh, conference in Indianapolis this summer. So look at those Eucharistic encounters, uh, at the, on the website. Go to the relevant radio website. Uh, they really are delightful stories. So worth, worth looking up. Get ready. You can support Relevant Radio in many ways, joining a giving society, donating a vehicle that you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. Donate now at relevantradio.com slash property. Grange, that's where seldom is heard a, a discouraging word. Yeah, I, I, I grew up home, home in the Grange. That, let's move along. Let's, let's go to the word of the day. <clears throat> well, let's see here. The word of the day. Let, let me get this here. Let me get this here. Okay. The word of the day. Uh, let's see here. Where was it? <sighs> I lost my word of the day. Well, we'll get another word of the day. No points, and may God have no points. Okay, I'm going to go back to an old word of the day because I think it's an important word of the day. I got a letter uh, not long ago uh, about uh, uh, the passage in Scripture uh, uh, that uh, said, uh, "If your heart does not condemn you." that a person used that passage to justify immoral behavior. When she uh, read, if your heart does not condemn you, that means if you feel good about something, uh, that's not what the passage means at all. In fact is, I think it actually means the opposite. Um, it's First John 3.21. Brethren, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. All right. <clears throat> Verse 20. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 
and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we keep his commandments. In other words, receiving what we ask is conditional on obeying God. Well, that's kind of lousy. I want what I want. You mean I got to obey God to get what I want? No. When God gives you a suggestion, <laughs> take it. You know, the 10 suggestions, um, we think of the commandments as um, kind of buzz killers that, you know, we want to have fun. And God's saying you can't have any fun. You can't take rubber bands home from work. You can't be mad at your neighbor. You can't uh, do other things that you might want to do. <laughs> well, uh, there's a joke. Moses comes on and tells the people, I, good news is I got them down to Ten Commandments. The bad news is thou shalt not, and fill in your favorite vice, thou shalt not bear false witness or whichever the commandments you want to get rid of. It's still one of them. So never mind. I think it's funny. Moving along, the uh, this idea that, that I have to obey God if my heart doesn't condemn me. What? Well, let's let's look at that, of course, in Greek. What is the... There are two words I want to kind of make the words for today. If our heart uh, does not condemn us... Well, what's the word condemn? It's katagignosko. If our heart doesn't, doesn't uh, um, hold us down, uh, if our heart does not make us decisively guilty. This is, this is, in a sense, I think that the, it's the opposite of what that person believes. If our heart does not uh, um, put us in a situation of condemnation, we have openness before God. In other words, a heart committed to sin is not open to God. It doesn't say confidence. It That word is parecia, which means openness. It's what the, the disciples spoke with parecia. They spoke with boldness. You know, we have this openness before God if our hearts aren't holding us back. If I have a heart committed to sin, it's holding me back from that absolute confidence. It's like a little kid who has absolute confidence in mommy and daddy until they do something that they know is really wrong, and then they try to, to hide the mess, you know? That, that, that's what's being said. If our heart doesn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, hold us back, you know? The kid who has no kind of sense of shame or guilt and can't ask his mother or father for forgiveness or can't understand that he is causing trouble to his mother and father, that kid is... Well, he's in mental trouble. Um, uh, there, there was a show, The Babysitter, or The Nanny, which this Englishman would come in and try to discipline these, these horrible children whose parents had no clue how to raise children. Well, that, that's kind of uh, um, what's going on in this passage, that if your heart uh, doesn't, doesn't condemn you, if your heart doesn't make you uh, alienated from God, then you have openness. But how do you get a heart open to God? By obeying his commandments. So I really think that that, that I wanted to mention that again because I've heard that passage misused so often. Uh, well, I can do whatever I feel because, well, I feel it. I feel it's right. This passage says, I believe exactly the opposite. You know, you have to obey his commandments in order to have a heart open to God. 
you know, he says, this is what's best for you. Okay, I trust you, Father. All right, let's let's go to, to phone calls. Telegram for you, sir. He gets mad Matthew. because he can't read. Well, oh, yes, I, I do, I do. Yes, I do. Matthew, what can I do for you? I can read. Hi, Father. Oh, Matthew? To... Yeah, what can I do for you? Yeah. Yes, I went to Christmas Eve Mass, and the Gospel was the saga of St. Joseph trying to figure yeah. out what to do when he found out Mary was pregnant. <laughs> and yes. uh, St. Matthew doesn't go into a lot of detail, because I'm, I'm guessing everyone understood at the time things about betrothal laws and what was lawful in that state and marriage mm-hmm. laws and things like that. But yeah. here in 21st century America, we don't have the foggiest about any of that stuff. And it leads to some unsatisfying interpretations. Um, and I was just, I'm not asking you to clarify necessarily, but is there a way to petition the church for a, a more widespread understanding of what St. Joseph was grappling with? And um, I don't, I don't really like to hear that he suspected Mary of wrongdoing. I, I personally don't think that's the case. Well, I, I wish I could disagree with you. We do know what it means, uh, if you, especially if you're the Orthodox Jew. I, I got that question. Well, when you were engaged, you were allowed to be intimate, you know, and then I called Rabbi, Le, by, Rabbi Lazowski. He's my new rabbi. I called Rabbi Lazowski, Rabbi Lefkowitz, rest in peace, and he said, oh, no. <laughs> Let's look at the marriage customs. You didn't marry your girlfriend, you might not have met her until the day of the wedding. The marriages were essentially arranged by parents. And the young woman appears in a heavy veil. That's why the wedding in, in modern Yiddish is called uh, the veiling. Or the, the, the veiling in ancient Greek, it was called the unveiling, the apocalypse. She was heavily veiled. She came to where the groom was, and they... Uh, uh, looked under the veil. And I remember asking Rabbi Lefkowitz, why did they do that? Uh, so that they didn't pull a fast one on us like they did to Jacob, our father, when he married Leah instead of Rachel. So this idea that, oh, yeah, they just hung around, and if they wanted to, you know, get friendly, it was all fine. You usually didn't meet your wife until the day of the wedding. Uh, and Rabbi Lozowski said, under no circumstance. And they have maintained... Uh, the Orthodox have maintained these customs these 2,000 years. Uh, um, so, no, that the people say, well, the, you know, the blessing. He, he was utterly confused by this. And it is quite possible, and I would say even probable, that Joseph was a relative of Mary's. And she had taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, she, uh, she was not going to marry, and or she was not going to have intimacies. And she would have been married to an older relative. And you generally married relatives. Uh, in that case, you probably knew the person you were marrying, but hadn't seen them since they were little kind of thing. Um, it's quite different than our romantic love. Romantic marriage is a modern invention. 300 years ago, it didn't really exist in Europe to speak of. There was, of course, romance, but it wasn't, didn't have much to do with marriage. So I don't know if that's what you're wanting to hear, but that's pretty much my research. That's pretty much the situation does then Joseph it it makes the story of St. Joseph even more wonderful to me because it says Joseph being a tzaddik being a righteous man if a Jew calls you a tzaddik it's the highest compliment he can pay you means a righteous man a man who is like God who is godly Joseph being a righteous man did not want to make an example of her that's exactly what the Greek text says 
It was because of his righteousness that he did not want to make an example, not because he really knew the real story. Eventually, he did know the real story revealed to him by God. Uh, so uh, I don't know. Does that does that clarify at all? Uh, it, it does, Father, but um, don't you don't you think it's important for more than just a very tiny group of experts to 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 be more familiar with? Uh, it's it's kind of like our family history. I just wish more people understood it, including myself, better. Well, you know, it, 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 there are there are great commentaries. There is something that I would recommend to you. It's called the Catena Aurea. See, I think that's the name, C-A-T-E-N-A, uh, and then Aurea, A-U-R-E-A. It is different scripture passages in the comments made by the fathers of the church. I believe it's the Catena Aurea. Voice in my head, dear Nick, you know the Catena Aurea, don't you? Yes, I've heard of it before. I've never used it before, but right, it's yeah, like a yeah. collection of all the fathers of the church, just like you were it's saying. It's a collection and it's a of nice, the fathers. Handy way yeah. of looking at uh, what the fathers have said about an individual scriptural passage. Yes, and so you can look that up. But then they don't agree with each other, you know. That and this is why I'm always telling you to take what I say with a grain of salt. What we need to know for our salvation is given us in the script. Thank you for the salt shaker. It's given in the scriptures. So uh, this one of the psalms says, "I have not." Uh, looked after things too great for me. It, it's kind of that childish waiting on the Lord is really tough because we want to know it all. But uh, at any rate, I think the scriptures are pretty clear in what they say, that because he was a just man, he did not want to make an example of her. That's that's what the text says, and I, I think it's pretty clear you know, that he, he could have made an example of her until the Lord intervened. So I don't know. I wish I had better news for you on that, but... Uh, we struggle along with the scriptures, the catechism, and the fathers of the church, and we've got all these things, so there you go. All right, thanks for calling sure in, Matthew. Father. God bless. You're welcome. God Let's bless. go to Joseph from Sa <clears throat> Thank you. Joseph from Sacramento. What can I do for you? <clears throat> yes, Father, thank you. I would like to know, as a believing Catholic, I, you know, we believe in the re resurrection of the dead, in the, yeah. you know, in the... Uh, is it a wholesome and charitable act, Father, to also pray that Jesus may also accept uh, others who do not believe, other faiths, non-believers, uh, in, in, into the resurrection? Is that a charitable thing, Father? Oh, I, I think it certainly is a, is, a, is a good and charitable thing. You see, that, that um, I love what St. Faustina said, and of course it's not, not part of our... Uh, uh, the, 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 it's not part of the deposit of faith, but I think it's still a beautiful thing. When she questioned those, the Lord about those people who hadn't the opportunity to hear the gospel, the Lord said, don't worry, at the hour of death, I am my own uh, apostle. Uh, so we have great hope that in some way God gives, and Pope Benedict said this, that we have a great hope that God in some way gives the opportunity to accept Christ to everyone. So yes, I would I would recommend that you pray for people uh, who are... Um, <laughs> I just offered Mass for the repose of the soul of a, uh, a friend, the father of a friend of mine who's Jewish. So <laughs> yes, I would recommend praying for the dead. I hope that helps, Joseph. God bless and, and uh, keep praying. Oh, we've only got 30 seconds. Oh, and Ed from Santa Maria, can anyone escape hell? Yes, by accepting Christ, but you can't do it after death. 
Death is when time stops or begins to stop. But time is not stopping, not on Relevant Radio. Drew is coming up. Join him. <laughs> 